Well, friends, I don't know uh, how you were feeling about uh, the state of the nation. If you were wondering if we'd finally find out what is going on, uh, what is taking place in the world, what's happening at ESCOM, what's happening in SAA, uh, what's happening in all these other departments. You know, we, as human beings, we have this inert desire uh, always, this motivation to know what is going on. We want to know what is going on in the world, and so we listen to the news. We want to know what is going on in our neighborhood. Uh, so we're part of our WhatsApp community uh, group vibe where you get all kinds of spam or you're part of your Facebook and you're like, okay, that's what's going on in the world. Thank you so much, CNN and Fox. That's what's going on in my neighborhood. Thank you so much, Facebook and uh, WhatsApp. And, and what is going on at my school? What is going on at my work? What's going on inside of my company? And, and when am I going to finally know what is going on? You know, we always are wanting to know what's going on. It just, it's something that seems to be built into us. And I suppose we want to know what's going on so that we can know what is going to be next. What is going to happen? Is there going to be a break-in in my community this week because some gang is operating? Uh, is there going to be World War III? My, my, my boys keep coming home and telling me, Dad, Trump's going to start World War III. I don't know if that's true or prophetic or what. You know, but it's like, that's, that's this thing that's going on. We want, we want to know, am I going to get paid at the end of this month? Am I going to be retrenched at the end of the year? What is, what is going on? But it's interesting because one of the things that we don't often find ourselves asking, even though we're obsessed with wanting to have all this information about what is going on, is we don't often find ourselves asking the question, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? And I have good news for you this morning because I'm going to tell you exactly what God is doing in the world. Acts chapter 11 and 12 tells us exactly what it is that God is doing in the world. And what God is doing in the world is God is growing His kingdom. When the disciples came to Jesus and Lord teach us to pray, He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The message of Acts, the message that Luke gives us, is a timeless message because the kingdom of God is a, kind, is a timeless kingdom. The kingdom of God is a timeless kingdom. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, God is building and growing and establishing His kingdom. And He's building and growing and establishing His kingdom despite great, horrific, and horrible odds against it. And that's exactly what we come to in Acts chapter 11, verses 19, right the way to the end of chapter 12 and 25. What, what is it that God is doing in the world? How does this growth happen? And we're given these little insights as to how growing His kingdom actually takes place. The growth of the kingdom happens, we will discover, as the word of the gospel, that is the message about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension to God's right hand, as that word spreads. As that word spreads to other places, it finds itself amongst other people. And as it finds itself amongst other people, it is planted into their hearts. And the end result is that those people come into the kingdom and the kingdom grows. Make no mistake, God's kingdom grows one person at a time. And so these two passages shed a little bit of light for us on what kind of kingdom this is and how it grows. The kingdom and the word of God are central characters right the way through the book of Acts. 
the kingdom of God and the word of God about Jesus are a powerful force that we discover are able to conquer the world without any bloodshed except Jesus himself. We discover that this kingdom is not of this world, but of another world. It is not natural in its order, but it is supernatural. And that the growth of the word and the growth of the kingdom leads to the creation and the growth of churches. And that's how we arrive in this little place called Antioch, which really isn't that little. It's the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. And the way that we got there is very simple. Back in Acts chapter 8, there was some persecution that had broken out just after Stephen had been killed. And we're told that all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus, they left Jerusalem except for the apostles. And they went to a bunch of different places. And the story we've been following was then about Philip, and he goes to Samaria, and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, and the gospel comes to Africa. And then we read about Saul, Saul who was persecuting these Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to go and round them up and put them in prison and maybe even kill them. And he hears the word of God, and he enters into the kingdom. And then back in chapter 9, right at the end of chapter 9, we read... Uh, in Acts uh, chapter 9 uh, and verse uh, 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. So from halfway through Acts chapter 9 up until this point in time in Acts chapter 11, there has been uh, a season and a time of peace. And during this season and time of peace, some disciples uh, find themselves in Phoenicia and Cyrus and Antioch, Uh, And they find themselves firstly ministering to Jews, but then they're speaking to Hellenists and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. That's shorthand for the gospel. They're preaching the word of the kingdom and the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24, a great many people were added uh, through the preaching of the word in Antioch. And so we see the kingdom growing. This is a really another watershed moment in the life of the church because this wasn't a, a mission sanctioned by the church in Jerusalem. This happened organically. All right, That's what all the church growth people would say. This is organic growth. But we know the real reason behind the growth, don't we? Because Luke tells us. The real reason behind the kingdom being established in Antioch was because, verse 21, the hands of the Lord was with them. So that's really the first thing that I want you to notice this morning from this passage. Okay, if you're taking notes. Number one, the kingdom is the kingdom of God's sovereign grace. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of His sovereign grace. God's uh, grace is when he gives us the complete opposite of what we deserve, uh, more than we can possibly imagine. It is blessing without, without end. And so we see this pattern of the kingdom of God's sovereign grace coming to Antioch, where all of these people hear the message concerning salvation that is found in the name of Jesus Christ, and they turn to the Lord and they're saved. The report makes its way back to Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem sends Barnabas. We met him back earlier in uh, chapter uh, 5 and 6. The report comes to Barnabas, and they send him there. And when he came, he saw what? Verse 23, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the church in Jerusalem. 
No, that's not what it says, is it? And he urged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas, seeing what was taking place in verse 25, goes down to Tarsus, he finds Saul, okay, the same Saul who had been converted on the road to Damascus. He knows that he is a great teacher and he's God's instrument to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So he finds him, he brings him to Antioch and for a whole year they met with the church and they taught in the church and, a great many, uh, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were there first called Christians. There's so much to unpack in this passage and we can't go into all of the, all, all of the details. Uh, but let me just draw out a couple of things. Uh, these, these, this is the first place uh, where followers of Jesus are called Christians. And it's quite interesting because in that one uh, term that they're given, the playing field is leveled. It's not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's not you were a Jew and then you follow Christ and you were not a Jew and then you follow Christ. Now they are all being identified by the outside world as Christians. That is followers of Jesus Christ. And so we see these barrier dividing walls that have been broken down by God himself back in chapter 10 being broken down within themselves so that they now identify and are identified as Christians. The, um, the, the, this is the first account that we really have is a detailed account not of the apostles taking the gospel but of just ordinary, regular Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution, because of hardship, because of difficulty carrying the gospel to a whole other place. What we see here inside of the kingdom is that it's one thing to uh, come to Christ, to become a Christian. There were many who believed and they turned to the Lord. A great many people were added to that number. But Barnabas recognized the need to uh, continue their discipleship, to continue their training, to continue their growth, to see them be raised up into maturity. And so he goes and he gets Saul. And for a whole year, they taught them in the truths of the faith. You see, friends, it's important for us to realize that it isn't, it's wonderful and a great celebration when we come to Christ. But following Christ is a lifelong endeavor that requires ongoing teaching and discipleship, ongoing training, and a continual desire to grow up into maturity. You know, Anthony talked about about going to the gym and getting your six-pack. You know, the, the hor- it's wonderful to have a six-pack, but you know what the horrible thing is about having a six-pack? You don't just get it once and then you're done. If you don't keep working at it, you, you lose it. And, and there is an element where we can rest on what has gone on before. Yes, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I said in 1983 that I am going to follow Him. And then what do we find that we're left with after that? Are we continuing to grow in the faith? Are we continuing to grow in our understanding? Barnabas thought this was so important that he went all the way to Tarsus, found Saul, convinced him to come back and to spend a year there discipling these Christians. And it's interesting then to look at the outworking of what that maturity entails. Because we're told this little story that in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that there would be a great famine over the world. And so the disciples determined everyone, according to his own ability, 
to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I think it's important to note that growing up into maturity um, isn't just about what you know about Jesus and God and the Bible. Uh, Church growth is shown to be a matter of maturing, not simply in numerical increase, but also uh, this important sign of maturing in generosity, in giving to the believers in need. So however it worked out, the church in Antioch knew that the church in Jerusalem was going to suffer worse. And so they, the disciples, the followers of Christ, determined that they would give according to their ability to send relief for that famine that was going to be taking place in uh, Jerusalem. And, And so that's really what you see working out. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God's sovereign grace. And it's interesting because the marks of the believers, what they are characterized by as they grow up into maturity, is grace. As they exhibit grace to the church in Jerusalem. That's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. The second thing that I want you to see this morning is that the kingdom is a kingdom that faces opposition. It's a kingdom that faces opposition. As we move uh, to, in chapter 11, we know that the church grew because of opposition and persecution. That's how these guys landed up in Antioch in the first place. Now, back in Jerusalem, there had been peace since Acts chapter 9, verse 31. But about that time, Acts chapter 12, verse 1, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when he saw that it made people happy, when he saw that it won favor amongst his supporters, he proceeded to arrest Peter Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him up over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, and it's implied to kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, was, uh, earnest prayer for him was made to God. The kingdom of God, and friends, the kingdom that you are a part of, if you are following Jesus Christ, if you've responded to the gospel, is a kingdom that faces opposition. It's a kingdom that faces opposition because its king faced opposition. It's uncanny the parallels between Jesus and the apostles at this point. Uh, The leaders sought to kill Jesus, to destroy Jesus, to stop Jesus. And so now the religious leaders and the political leaders are seeking to eliminate the apostles. Uh, Christianity and the kingdom of God doesn't just face opposition from religion. It also faces opposition uh, from political corners. It it faces opposition from science. It it faces opposition uh, from the intelligentsia. It it faces opposition from the wealthy. It faces opposition from every single corner of this world. Because the prince of the power of this age and his followers who live in darkness want nothing to do with it. In actual fact, they will use it to their own ends to increase their popularity, 
you know, if this was Herod, I'm sure that his followers on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram would have shot way up as he stood there with uh, Peter saying, hey guys, I've arrested him. And his followers kind of just go through the roof and yay, and all the likes and the loves and all the other things. He probably even made himself a TikTok uh, dancing uh, there with Peter. I don't know, that's for the younger crowd that's here. They know what I'm talking about. Parents with teenagers. And so this kingdom faces opposition uh, all the time, all the time. It's interesting to note, though, that the kingdom that faces opposition, we're not always told, we're not always sure how the kingdom, the people, so we, sorry, we know that the kingdom will always win because it's God's kingdom. But we don't always know how the details of that opposition will play out in our lives. James was killed by the sword. Peter was rescued by an angel, a messenger of God. One executed, another delivered. This teaches the church to live within the mystery of God's providence. That the way that it works out for one person is not necessarily the way that it works out for another. That we must be very careful to attach the language of blessing and the language of deliverance and the language of victory on things in this life. Because we just don't know in the mystery of God's providence how our life is going to work out. Why is it that one wife loses her husband to cancer and another doesn't? Uh, why, why is it that, that things go in particular ways? Why is it that these two apostles, so close to Jesus, one could be killed by the sword and the other saved? And so it teaches us, it teaches you, it teaches me, to rely afresh in each and every situation that we will face in this life on the mercy and the continuing care of God. James went to be with his Lord in paradise in heaven. Peter would continue doing the work of the kingdom here on earth. Both were part of the kingdom, but God had very different designs for them. So that's number two. The kingdom of God faces opposition. Number three, this is a kingdom that is countercultural. This is a kingdom that is supernatural. It is not of this world. Uh, This is a kingdom that is marked, and it's interesting, you think that what I'm going to talk about now is that it's a kingdom that's supernatural because God sends an angel. That's not where I'm going. This is a kingdom that is supernatural and countercultural because look at what it was that took place before God sent his angel to rescue Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, and you read over the second half of verse 5 so quickly because, oh, well, you know, that's the Bible and that's what Christians do. Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer really does change things. Our kingdom that we are part of is countercultural because, according to what the world says, and even according to what Peter was facing in light of, um, of his impending death, because he was dying, that was a sure thing. James was dead, Herod has him. Peter was dead. In actual fact, when he goes and knocks on the door and the servant girl doesn't let him in but says, hey, Peter's outside, they're like, no, he's dead. It's his angel. 
Prayer really does change things. God really does use our prayers. His kingdom is countercultural because although we glance over this earnest prayer and consider it to be passive and impotent in light of the uh, political powers of the day and the intelligentsia of the day and the smart, wise people of the day, in God's economy, in his kingdom, he uses prayer. He hears prayer. And he answers prayer. And so, an angel of the Lord, in the most supernatural of ways, comes in and he rescues Peter and he delivers Peter. It's also true to say that this kingdom is uh, countercultural. It's, it's supernatural and that God is the one who intervenes in his kingdom. You see, God wasn't done with Peter yet. For whatever reason, the Lord was finished. James's time here on earth in working the vineyards of the kingdom was done. But God wasn't finished with Peter. And so in a countercultural way, in a supernatural way, he delivers Peter. Which really brings me to my fourth point, which is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of God's sovereign power. It's God's demonstration of his sovereign power to both deliver and to judge. That's what this kingdom is about. So for Peter, he sends his angel and he's delivered. It's interesting because the church doesn't even believe its own prayers, does it? In verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she doesn't open the gate, but she runs. You can just imagine Peter kind of standing outside the gate going, the soldiers are coming, soldiers are coming, let me in. Anyway, she runs and they say, you're out of your minds. She keeps insisting that it's so. They keep saying it's an angel. But Peter just keeps on knocking. It's me. Can you let me in? And eventually they open the gate and they saw him and they are amazed. But he tells them to keep quiet. He says, this is what's taken place. Tell the things to James. This is a different James. James, That James is dead. This is James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who's now a leader at the church in Jerusalem. And he departs and he goes to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers. Uh, and we hear the rest of the story. And Herod, uh, in the most horrific way, has them put to death for losing Peter. And then he moves away. It's a kingdom of God's sovereign power in his ability to deliver. God is able to deliver. And when you couple his grace with his power, you realize not as he's just able to deliver, he wants to. God wants to bring his grace and shine his light into people's hearts. He wants to bring people into relationship with himself. It's not God who resists it, it's people who resist it. He wants to work in your life. It's not him that's getting in the way. It's you that's getting in the way. It's you that's resisting the work that he's wanting to take place. Because he is able and he is willing and he will do it. And he will accomplish the purpose of his kingdom no matter what. But we don't just see his power in deliverance. We also see his power in judgment. In the kind of gross, weird story that we get uh, in the last few verses of chapter 12. Herod goes down to Caesarea, he meets some people there, Uh, they love him, you're amazing, you're the voice of a god, not of a man, and he is struck down dead. Immediately, we're told, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and what's more, he was eaten by worms, and he breathed the last. 
Now you can go to listen to some interesting theories on the internet about exactly what it was that happened here, you know, that he kind of had a stroke and he also had worms and it kind of all came together. We don't know. But what we do know is that God is sovereignly involved because it was the angel of the Lord that struck him down. Here then is a preview of what God will do to those who oppose his kingdom. The graphic and the unusual way that it's recorded for us makes us think it's not natural what took place there. It wasn't just by chance. It was a supernatural event of God's sovereign power in judgment. You see, the kingdom of God that is broken into this world is a kingdom that is dividing this world between those who want to be on the inside and those who remain outside. And the story of Herod is a reminder of the terrible fate awaiting those who oppose the gospel of the kingdom and refuse to give the glory that is due to God and to God alone. It's a kingdom about God's sovereign grace. It's a kingdom that faces opposition. It's a kingdom that is countercultural. It is the kingdom of God's sovereign power and is the place. You want to know where God is working? And where is God's power in the world? It's in his kingdom. It's in his church. It's in his people who proclaim his word of gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. To the people in Cape Town, to the people in Harare, and to the people everywhere else as well. And the fifth thing and last thing that I want you to hear this morning is that the kingdom is a kingdom that is growing. It is a kingdom that is growing one person at a time. There is nothing that will stop the kingdom of God advancing. Although it might be invisible, except for some gatherings on a Sunday and in the week, it largely remains invisible. Just having Anthony here this morning was hopefully just some little microcosm of reminder that the church invisible is the church international. That although we might not see it or touch it or taste it, it doesn't mean it's not there. And the stories that Anthony will tell you is that this kingdom is an unstoppable kingdom. The stories that Southern Cross will tell you is that this kingdom is an unstoppable kingdom because it welcomes people into the kingdom one person at a time. I wonder if it isn't more helpful uh, rather than us talking about Christians and before I was a Christian and after I was a Christian because we live in such a Christian culture where everybody's a Christian if they're not Muslim or Jew to rather talk about the time before I was in the kingdom and after I became a part of the kingdom. That moment, that time, that point where I heard the gospel and understood it and said, I bow my knee to King Jesus and I ask him to let me into that kingdom. That kingdom that's unstoppable, that faces imprisonment, that faces martyrdom, that faces inflation, that faces food shortages, uh, that that faces uh, death by the sword, that faces death by stoning, that faces death by burning. That kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is the kingdom that is growing throughout the world. And let me get really personal as I just bring this right to an end. Because we're talking about big things this morning. We're talking about being part of that kingdom. Being part of the people of God. But let me distill it just into one person's life this morning and that is yours. Is the kingdom of God growing in your life? 
Did the kingdom of God grow in your life this week? What will you put into place in the week to come to ensure that the kingdom of God is growing inside of you and taking over your life? Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6? Where he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Let me just take this right full circle. We were all worried this week about what the president was going to say and what was going to come out at State of the Nation. And we're all worried this week about is it going to be stage three load shedding or stage one load shedding. And we're really grateful that we've got the water crisis behind us, but maybe we're a little bit worried about what's going to happen there. And I'm not so sure what's going to happen at work this week. And the economy's not great. And am I going to get paid? And will I have a job? And those are all legitimate worries. Except, except that Jesus says, into the midst of that, into the midst of your life, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Friends, there are very few things in life that you can control. But the kingdom of God growing in you is one of the things that you can so why not stop worrying about all those other things and start seeking first his kingdom in your life and in the world? Because remember, we learned a lot about growing into maturity and about doing good deeds, showing grace. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus said, you know all those other things? that are controlling and making you anxious and making you worry and using up all your bandwidth and your brain, well, you know, all those things will be given to you as well. But you, you seek first his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be people of the kingdom, people who seek the kingdom. May we take courage from the facts that we have seen today that your kingdom is not of this world, uh, that your kingdom is unstoppable, uh, that your kingdom will keep on growing until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And so, Father, help us to be part of that kingdom, that exciting thing that you are doing. May we see kingdom growth in our life. May we see kingdom growth in our church. May we see kingdom growth in our country and even in our continent. Father, that is what we pray for. If the church could pray that Peter would be delivered, we can pray, your kingdom come. And so, Lord, send your kingdom into our hearts and break into the hearts of those around us who we know and love and those around us who we don't. May we be earnest in prayer and steadfast in our faith and love for you and your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dance. Let's sing together as we end our time.